You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Thank you for joining us for the New York Times Book Review. My name is Nora Ami. Culture, the story of us, from cave art to K-pop, by Martin Puchner. Disparate communities around the world, from adults who are somehow still Little Mermaid fans to neo-Nazi admirers of Victor Hugo, have fallen prey to a transnational delusion about how culture works. In this narrative, culture can be owned by nations, by ethnicities, by religions and races, the way that someone might lay claim to their voice or the color of their eyes. Here, culture is a constituent part of identity, fixed and unchanging. Suggesting otherwise can destabilize a person's sense of self. Thus, last fall, when a restoration of a statue of Hugo in the French town of Bensensong resulted in the darkening of its face, local neo-Nazis splashed it with white paint and hung a white power sign from its hands. They were proclaiming Hugo's place in the firmament of an immutable French, read white, identity. They'd be damned if the author wound up like Ariel, the titular Little Mermaid, who, in the upcoming Disney remake, is played by the black singer and actress Halle Bailey. There's a wrinkle to the story, though. The Hugo statue was the work of the Senegalese sculptor Ousmane So. Born in Dakar, but educated partly in France, where he was eventually inducted into the Académie des Beaux-Arts, so embodies the contradiction at the heart of European imperialism. France and other colonial powers created a fiction of cultural ownership that justified their dominion over large swaths of the planet. They, the supposed inheritors of Greek and Roman civilization, which they ahistorically recast as white, were obviously superior to the people they conquered. After all, their imperial subjects hadn't inherited the classical world's glories. Yet, the rampant exploitation, pilfered resources, and forced migrations that characterized the colonial project also gave the lie to the notion that culture belongs to one people or another. As diverse populations shuttled around the globe, their cultures circulated with them and cross-pollinated until an artist from a former French colony could fabricate a sculpture honoring a French literary icon and abolitionist. Rather than being proof of a distinct French civilization, the statue speaks to France's enmeshment in a global system of cultural transmission. The literary scholar and Harvard professor Martin Puchner's latest book, Culture, the Story of Us, From Cave Art to K-Pop, makes the case that this enmeshment has been the rule rather than the exception. In Pushner's telling, human history is not one of neatly delineated canons and hierarchies that respect geographical boundaries. In our debates over originality and integrity, appropriation and mixture, we sometimes forget that culture is not a possession, he writes in the introduction, likening the production of knowledge to a vast recycling project in which small fragments from the past are retrieved to generate new and surprising ways of meaning-making. In this account, culture resembles a centuries-long game of telephone, as ideas resound through time and spread across continents. As people migrate, 
they make and remake culture to help explain the contexts in which they find themselves. Puchner's previous books include The Written World, The Power of Stories to Shape People, History, Civilization. In it, he explained how the written word combined with our compulsion for storytelling as a way of organizing human thought across centuries, from the teaching of Confucius to the poet Derek Walcott's insight that post-colonial nations needed new stories to guide them in the world. Culture is similarly broad in scope, covering everything from the Egyptian queen Nefertiti's radical break with established religious cults to the Haitian revolutionary general Toussaint Louverture's savvy appropriation of Enlightenment rhetoric to make the case against slavery. Puchner tells a chronological story in which certain tropes of human history, the world-changing technology of writing, the storage of that writing in libraries and universities, violent conquest, and the ever-present need to explain why things are the way they are, are neatly woven together into a celebration of syncretism. For Puchner, this syncretism is the necessary outcome of a messy confrontation with the past, for much of our history, the only resource we had for making sense of the world. That's a broken and fragmented resource, though, lending itself to constant misinterpretation and reappropriation. These confrontations can be rejections, as when Nefertiti dismissed the cult of Amon in favor of Aten, or they can be pure invention. Trying to explain the Greeks' relatively new writing system and short record of literacy with respect to the Egyptians' grand tradition, Plato concocted a heroic past for his people, citing fictional Egyptian priests who claim to have recorded the story of Athens' battle with the now-lost city-state known as Atlantis. As Puchner argues, confrontations with the past also often take the form of recovery and adaptation. As people stumbled upon the remains of defunct civilizations, translated the surviving texts of ancient philosophical traditions, built new empires atop the infrastructures of old ones, or simply encountered foreign influences, they incorporated this material into their own cultures, producing hybrids that both preserved and reimagined their sources. Contemplating the 3rd century BC empire of King Ashoka of the Indian Mauryan dynasty, Puchner notes that the emperor built on the network of cultural exchange begun by Alexander the Great, on whose former empire Ashoka stood, thus accelerating the integration of far-flung societies. As cultural contact across large geographic areas spread, more and more people encountered relics of cultures they did not understand. Puchner writes, and they often eyed these objects with curiosity, trying to make sense of them as best they could. Sometimes they even decided to adapt them to their own purposes. Puchner is an adept storyteller who uses narrative to show that the common trait among all human cultures is skillful stealing in service of explanation. Tracking Homer's influence, he finds the trope that Odysseus inaugurated, the war hero returning home adopted and deployed again and again. Virgil, in trying to give a history of Rome every bit as illustrious as Greece's, must also ease the anxiety of influence set off by Rome's wholesale adoption of Greek culture. Thus, he writes in Aeneid, a clear homage to Homer's epic that sets Rome apart by appropriating the character of Aeneas, a Trojan warrior. 
In Virgil's telling, though, Aeneas becomes a founding father of the Roman state. Hundreds of years later, the Portuguese poet Louis de Camos drew on his knowledge of the classics to write the Lusiads, the Portuguese, an epic poem celebrating Portugal's emerging colonial empire by casting historical figures like the 15th century explorer Vasco da Gama as latter-day Greek heroes. Culture falters in trying to explain the new order these Portuguese explorers heralded, though. In a chapter on George Eliot's use of history in her fiction, Puchner acknowledges that the recovery of the past was infused with colonialism and details some of the pilfering that accompanied imperialism. But I had hoped that, in grappling with the Enlightenment conceit of historical progress, Puchner would also grapple with its entanglement with racist ideas. While European colonialism follows a familiar historical pattern of cultural borrowing and remaking, it also represents a shift from the syncretic process. Imperialists tasked with explaining not just their dominion of the world, but the economic system which that dominion brought into being, adopted concepts devised to justify the exploitations of colonialism and chattel slavery, indeed the very notion of ownership that Puchner is writing against. This ideology represented a new stance toward the past and foreign cultures, emphasizing rigid notions of racial and cultural difference. Such thinking dismissed the fluid interchange of ideas that gave rise to, say, the Islamic rediscovery of Greek philosophy and its eventual dissemination to medieval Europe. In place of such exchange, thinkers like Thomas Jefferson resorted to false hierarchies and intellectual contortions to obfuscate history and validate racism. See his book, Notes on the State of Virginia. Kutchner wisely skirts contemporary arguments over race and appropriation, avoiding the cul-de-sacs to which they often lead. But I had hoped for a turn in his argument, an exploration of how racial ideology helped construct that cul-de-sac in the first place. He ends his book with a stirring call to syncretism as the only way to reinvigorate both the study of cultural history and the creation of more culture. If we're going to stop bickering over what belongs to whom, though, we need to know how we arrived at this dead end. This review was written by Ismail Mohammed, who is a story editor at The Times Magazine. I Keep My Exoskeletons to Myself by Marissa Crane In a sunny corner of America, not too far in the future, a baby is born as one of her two mothers. Her birth mother draws her last breath. A sinister entity called the Department of Balance issues this unwitting killer baby a second shadow, and she joins her remaining mother, Chris, the narrator of Marissa Crane's debut novel, I Keep My Exoskeletons to Myself, in an inferior and suspect class. Shadesters, whose extra shadows flag them as people who have done harm, are marked for ostracism, for even minor accidents or unintentional wrongs. They are relegated to picked-over food at the grocery store. They wait longer for health care. They endure the rough treatment from no-shads. There are no prisons in this America. Control is maintained by these punitive extra shadows and via in-home cameras. For Chris and her baby, the shadows further marginalize their family unit, 
which stands out in a society where queer people seem, at best, only tolerated. Surrounded by the flotsam left behind by her dead wife, Bo, the grief-stricken Chris must learn how to raise their child. The novel is episodic, and Crane plays with form by threading in pop quizzes and Chris's somber facts about animals in captivity. The narration is addressed to the deceased Bo. The kid's only saving grace is her widow's peak, Chris explains, when the baby keeps her awake. It's a masterpiece, just like yours. Chris handles her new responsibilities as a mother with a dirtbag heroism. She drinks. She grapples with grief and shame. She meditatively recites the names of creatures with exoskeletons for courage. She gingerly establishes friendships and reconnects with her estranged father. Some of her struggles are mundane, worrying about tummy time, and some are existential, like wondering about how to tell her child she may be despised wherever she goes. The baby grows from a feisty toddler to a precocious rebel, who combines, Chris laments with pride, the influential skills of a dictator and the organizational skills of a wedding planner. Meanwhile, the cameras are always watching. What would 1984 be like if Winston Smith had an endearing personality? Crane's book gives us a disarming model for life under surveillance. Chris's voice is everything in this novel. She's a morose, prickly, paranoid, yet lovable narrator with exquisite comic timing. Should I be able to see all the blood inside her? She asks the baby forums with her characteristic deadpan. Later, she shuts off her phone so the kid and I can misinterpret each other without interruption. Her interactions with others are filled with comedy and pathos. Readers who like every mechanism and metaphor of control mapped out may be underwhelmed by the novel's world-building, which is quiet. But the subversive intelligence of the book is its representation of the stolen pleasures and general unease of a hemmed-in life the mood created by Chris's interiority, which reflects the jumpiness of living with trauma and surveillance, makes questions raised by the sparsely rendered workings of the state largely irrelevant to the novel's enjoyment. In any case, the novel operates on a level of verisimilitude. In life, as in the novel, the long struggle for queer people to enjoy open public lives now meets legislative bigotry across America. Crane's novel understands that fascism creeps in fits and starts, and that state violence lets some people enjoy normal life while others are targeted with grotesque specificity. The book also knows that in these circumstances, people suffer. They also find love, form networks, make plans. I Keep My Exoskeletons to Myself is a meditation on those precious acts through which Chris finds her way the joy of queer parenting and chosen family, the beauty of forgiveness and the resistance inherent in expansive love. This review was written by Lydia Kiesling, who is the author of The Golden Skate. Her second novel, Mobility, will be published in August. Our Share of Night by Mariana Enriquez in the 1970s, the artist Salvador Dali was commissioned to create a tarot deck for the James Bond film Live and Let Die. The deal fell through, but Dali continued to work on the cards, casting himself as the magician and his wife Gala as the empress. 
Inspired by the raw, dreamlike language of Delacroix, Duchamp, and Surrealism, Dali married the hallucinatory with the concrete, the esoteric with the commonplace, and the disturbing with the beautiful to create images that feel both ethereal and visceral. This is the vibe of Mariana Enriquez's startlingly brilliant new novel, Our Share of Night. Epic in scope, it is 600 pages long, the narrative explores the founding families of the Cult of the Shadow, also known as The Order, an international secret society of wealthy occultists seeking to preserve consciousness after death. The hunt for immortality leads them to do the unthinkable. Three families of blood, the Bradfords, the Reyeses, and the Mathers, dominate the tale. In particular, one of the heirs of the order, Rosario Reyes Bradford, along with her partner Juan and their son Gaspar. Juan and Gaspar have divine gifts the order covets. They are mediums with an ability to summon the darkness, described variously as a mouth feeding on human life and a shape-shifting presence that enshrouds like a shadow, ripping away limbs and swallowing people whole. The darkness is a contradictory force, one that brings life and death, something both obscure and lustrous. The burden of communication with the darkness is heavy. Mediums didn't last long, Juan thinks when speculating about Gaspar's gifts. The contact with ancient gods destroyed them physically and mentally. Some died in the first contact or very soon after. Most of them went irrevocably mad very quickly. There was no magic or ritual or science that could revive them. But Juan, despite a congenital heart disorder, has survived exposure to the darkness and is desperate to protect his son from the order. Their interdependence, Juan's need to protect Gaspar, and Gaspar's growing need to understand his powers forms the bright, hot center of the novel, a big bang that begets scintillating peripheral constellations in an ever-expanding universe of lore, myth, migrations, massacres, demonology, the sadistic torture of destroyed children, sigils and signs, biographies of dead mediums, and the sacrifice of initiates. The novel moves from 1980s Argentina to 1960s London, then back to Argentina in the 1990s. It expresses the horrors of Argentina's disappeared and the struggle to survive in the shadow of such a void. Amid such magnitudes, Juan stands out. He's a gorgeous character, a magical adrogyne, who is attractive to both women and men. Besieged by the dead, he hears the echoes of murdered people with blindfolded eyes, feet bound, some of their faces or whole bodies swollen, others who drag themselves along in burlap sacks, a legion he could not make disappear. Locked down by his gift, tortured by it, Juan has also gained a position of power in the order. To them, he is indispensable. That is not true for Rosario. She's a woman of blood, a descendant of the order, and also an anthropologist specializing in the Guarani, an oppressed tribe. Her academic research is layered throughout the novel, weaving the atrocities of Argentine history with those of the order. It is an unholy tangle, one Rosario can't escape. In one of the most psychologically acute moments in the novel, she must choose between doing the order's bidding or saving her son. Juan says to her, Do I have to save Gaspar alone? 
can't I make you change? What Enrique means is, can a person step out of history? Is change possible? Can future generations create a world untainted by the brutalities of the past? Not if the order can help it. They are most ruthless with their own, especially when it comes to finding a new medium. One such tragedy occurs when Eddie, a boy of blood, is driven mad by the order. Juan lures Eddie into the other place, a zone of the darkness that the order didn't know about, strings him up in a tree and bends his left leg, shaping him into a manifestation of the tarot's hanged man. Some version of the tarot left the hands loose, but there in the other place it seemed appropriate to respect the traditional version. One can't help thinking of Dolly's version of the hanged man, a human pendulum swinging in a midnight forest, dressed in Baroque costume as the night encroaches. Like Dolly's card, Eddie's death has the force of a vision. Because Juan, Gaspar, and Rosario are such magnetic characters, the narrative tends to slacken when Enrique moves away from them. There are digressions that can feel gratuitous, such as pages of Rosario's shopping and acid trips in London, and the exploits of Gaspar's childhood friends. And yet, even these moments build, becoming minor notes in an incantation. Our share of night is a mouthpiece for human darkness that, like Dolly's cards, reveals the unspeakable. It is an enchanting, shattering, once-in-a-lifetime reading experience. Scorched Grace by Margot Duehi. Sister Holiday, the protagonist of Margot Duehi's showstopper of a series debut, Scorched Grace, isn't what you'd imagine a nun to be like, even in laissez-faire New Orleans. Not that I knew what to make of a nun like me, gold tooth from a bar fight, black scarf and gloves concealing my tattoos, my black roots pushing through badly bleached hair, she says. Holiday longs for her married musician ex-girlfriend and her dead mother. But the Sisters of the Sublime Blood took Holiday in when no one else dared, and in the years since, she has found purpose and meaning, particularly in teaching music at St. Sebastian's. In the convent, in the classroom, on stage, you are the flawless avatar, the saint, the superhero. But inside, we're all the same, hearts that want to belong. Then fires begin breaking out at the school and the convent. Someone she knows dies in the flames, and her innate impatience and a long-standing yen for amateur sleuthing assert themselves. Scorch Grace's power derives from Holiday's non-stop internal struggle. I worked so hard to let people into my new life, but when you don't know or trust yourself, how can you give anyone else the benefit of the doubt? I cannot wait to read the sisters' next investigation of mysteries and of her own self. Afterglow Climate Fiction for Future Ancestors, edited by Grist. Drawing from literary movements like Afrofuturism, Hope Punk, and Solar Punk, this collection of 12 short stories approaches climate change with hope for the radically different futures humans might create. Boundless as the Sky, Stories, by Dawn Raffle. This book's first section sketches cities real and imagined. The second part, a novella, follows multiple Chicagoans over a single day during the 1933 World's Fair. 
Saying It Loud, 1966, the year Black Power Challenged the Civil Rights Movement, by Mark Whitaker. In this meticulous history, a journalist recounts the dramatic shift in the long struggle for racial justice that the year 1966 ushered in, from Huey Newton and Bobby Seale's founding of the Black Panther Party to Stokey Carmichael's vision of black power. Thank you for joining us for the New York Times Book Review. My name is Nora Ami. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.